Welcome to Super Bowl Sunday, or should I say day four of the Phoenix Open, if you care. Uh, Fiona's husband, Andy, is a musician and had no idea that today was the Super Bowl. He scheduled a rehearsal to begin when kickoff was. Obviously, there are people who don't care. Um, and they're actually still in our family. It's like, really? Anyway. Um, but even more importantly, I realized I failed you last week because last week was International Chocolate Sunday, Ooh. and I didn't bring anything for you. Um, you can make up for it. Yeah, I was actually thought about it all week, but I should surprise you. And then, you know, I've got 51 weeks to work on it. Uh, <laughs> just, that, that's a way to keep you coming back, because it could be next week that I surprise you. Wouldn't that be something? <coughs> I am also on day 26 of this cough, so I apologize. Um, I don't have a mute button. You're just going to have to listen to it if I start <coughs> doing that. Uh, okay, we are in Acts chapter 16, continuing our study of the chronological um, exploration of Scripture. Last week, we had Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke crossing the Aegean Sea into the city of Philippi. As I mentioned last week, Philippi was founded by Philip II of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father. Uh, I just It was one of those things where I continue to read, and I'm, I'm a voracious and very eclectic reader, and came across a little trivia thing that I didn't know last week. But Philip of Macedon needed to hire a tutor for his young son, Alexander. And anybody know who that man, that tutor was? Aristotle. Aristotle. So you have Aristotle, the famous Aristotle was part of this community about 500 years earlier, maybe 300 years earlier than this. And so that idea of the intellect, the, uh, the, the seeking for what is good in contrast to the, the society's, um, how should I say, uh, unrequited, sec uh, unrequited secularism. In fact, I looked a little bit into the, uh, the court of Philip II and he was about as bad as any of the Roman emperors like Caligula and others. He was just horrible. And yet, he was actually assassinated. Um, so you end up with his son being tutored by a man who's known for his attempt to counter a lot of that from a secular standpoint with his ethics. So this is the community into which Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke have arrived. Last week, we found them outside the city walls in a place of prayer, uh, which suggested there was no synagogue in town. We're not quite sure why. It could be that there weren't enough men to have one. You needed to have ten. And when they got to the place of prayer, well, there were only women there. So that suggests that maybe there weren't enough Jewish men in Philippi. Secondly, and it's a a thing that I'll be repeating again today in our study, 
But in 49 AD, which is right around this time, so let's set our calendars properly, you know, flip, flip your outlook back a few hundred years, and now we know this, that we're in, we're in the year 49. Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were disrupting things. There was an anti-Semitism, very strong anti-Semitism in the empire of Rome. Could it be because Philippi was a colony of Rome, which meant it was a Rome away from Rome? Uh, it was Roman land and abided by Roman Empire rules, even though it was in another country. Could it be that that edict had moved its way across the Ionian Sea, across Macedon, Macedonia, and gotten to Philippi, and the people had said, we need the Jews out. And maybe that's why there wasn't a synagogue. We don't know, but there's a possibility. So we pick up after they were at the place of prayer, they found Lydia, the seller of purple, who is obviously a very prominent and successful woman in a, domi a male-dominated society. And she converted to Christianity. She had been a God-fearer and had been following or seeking for God. And it said in verse, let's get it here, um, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And as we talked about it last week, the word open is not simply an opening a door. It's a kicking down the door. It was a very powerful act of the Spirit to open Lydia's heart. <coughs> so now we move to verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, so they went back. After they'd met with Lydia, they go back to the same spot by the river and were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now let's look a little carefully at that. Lydia was called a woman. This one is called a girl. So evidently she's very young. Maybe not even of marriageable age. Is that a word? Marriageable? Mm -hmm. Marriageable age? Did I say it right? Anyway, I don't dare try to spell it in front of you. Um, <coughs> but she's a slave, too. So we don't know if he, she's from Asia, across the sea, from Gaul, up north, whether she's Greek, we don't know, but she's a slave. And she's a girl, so she's a trafficked girl. We have sex trafficking in our society where they take young women and use them. In this case, we have a young girl who is a slave but has a spirit, a pneuma, of python. That's the Greek word there. P-Y-T-H-O-N. <coughs> a spirit of divination or python. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's the same words used in the Old Testament to describe the witch of Endor. So here's a little uh, background on this. 
Python in Greek mythology was the serpent that guarded Delphi. <coughs> According to the legend, as related in the Homeric hymn, Apollo descended from Olympus in order to select a site for his shrine and his oracle. Having fixed upon a spot in the southern side of Mount Parnassus, he found it guarded by a vast and terrific serpent which he slew with an arrow and suffered its body to rot in the sun. Hence the name of the serpent Python, which means to rot. The name of the place and the epithet Pythian, P-Y-T-H-I-A-N, applied to Apollo. <coughs> Excuse me, I am just having a hard time this morning. The name Python was subsequently used to denote a prophetic demon and was also used of soothsayers. So she is this young woman who is possessed by a demon and her power was fortune-telling. The word fortune-telling, another wonderful Greek word. I'll have to put this one up on the board. can't pronounce it properly. Okay, here we go. Man to, oh my. So you see right in here is the key word, mente, mantis. It is a word that means to be mad or beside oneself. And mad not as in angry, but as in nuts. So a temporary madness or a thrashing about. <clears throat> Spiro Zodiati says that this word means to divine or utter spells. <clears throat> Such soothsayers raged, foamed, and screamed making strange and terrible noises, sometimes gnashing with their teeth, shaking and trembling with many strange motions. Plato calls people caught up in such ecstasy, possessed of man madness, as mantis. That's where you see the first five letters there. Which excited and inspired the mind in enthusiastic songs and poems. So sometimes the muse... The Greek word for muse was that spirit of excitement or overwhelming excitement. But the mantis were possessed of a maniacal fury which displayed itself by rolling eyes, foaming mouth, and flying hair. Now, I don't know if any of you who have ever witnessed anyone like that. You probably have seen television documentaries or whatever of people that are really they're possessed and you see it and just they, they're out of control but from their mouth comes fortune telling now wait this was an interesting question one one theologian brought up he said the devil is not omniscient he's not all-knowing so how can he know the future so how can he predict the future through a human that's possessed one of his, one of his demons? 
That's an interesting question. How would you answer that? Yay. Put on your theology hat. Let's have a rousing discussion here and figure out how demons work. But seriously, think about that for a second. We, we assume someone who's fortune-telling, they're predicting the future, but if they're possessed by a demon in doing that, how does that work? Well, demons are not uh, finite like we are. They are fallen angels, so they live in the eternal now. Correct. So they have an overview of time different than what we have. Possibly. That's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, it could be like fortune cookies. They could be just platitudes, things that kind of give. And the one who presents it can, uh, the guys make the money, can do a little turning. True. It, it probably was a little more intense than that, but I, I mean, there is the idea that a broken clock is right twice a, twice a day. You know, you, I could say, you know what? I predict that the stock market is going to fall sometime in the next 10 years. It's going to go lower than it is now. It's like, really? No, come on. I mean, Gene Dixon is a famous, um, you know, psychic who she predicted in 1953 that the President of the United States would be assassinated. She didn't say when. She was right 11 years later, and everyone went, oh my goodness, and now she was suddenly world famous because she predicted the shooting of JFK. It's like, ah, well, okay, so other thoughts? Anybody? Yeah. So have you seen that show Drive Through History? Hmm? Drive Through History. It's like a Christian take back on things that happened in the past, and he went back to that, um, that place where they were meeting, okay. they were doing fortune telling, and they were talking, he was talking about how there was also there was gas, it was kind of like a sulfuric gas, and so part of that he was saying, I mean, in addition to probably the divinations and the yeah. evil, what happened there, there was also some hallucination. Yes, there is actually some thought that there are um, psycho, psychedelic drugs or yeah. um, uh, not gases, but say it, crushed leaves or whatever, creating a potion that they would then take and would cause this this reaction. At the same time, that may be scientific, but we're talking about the spiritual realm here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between predicting the future and knowing the future, right? So ah. I don't think okay. demons know the future. Okay. That's a good way of Just putting like it. Just like meteorologists <laughs> predict the future because they have some evidence. And how often are they wrong? And how every once in a while they're right. You know, they said it was going to rain today, and it did. Yeah, hey. They were correct. Uh, you, you know that you have some knowledge, and you notice know uh -huh. a pattern, and you expect it to follow, right? So uh -huh. the demons have some knowledge. They know what God's plan is, God's work. People are like, yeah. people are like, they can have some insight. And so yeah. many educated guesses. Yeah. Well, also, power of suggestion brings on self fulfilling prophecy. That's true. That's true as well. You know, sometimes the charlatans, magicians that you see in shows, they, they read the room. They can read our room, they can look at all our faces, and they can start making guesstimates within the confines of the room that they see. Well, they have, demons have power and they can make things happen. That would be well, according to what they said. There's another thought that one, one theologian brought up. They said, the demon knows what he's going to do. 
You know, mm -hmm. he, he, he knows that, you know, we're going to be doing this next week. And so there's this prediction element to it. Yeah. And, and when someone is enslaved by their own desires and sin, the world, then there's not much freedom in that. And I think right. that um, people like to think that they have free will. Um, but I think when you're, when you're not in Christ, you have... You're, well, of course, you're a slave to sin. And right. so when the demons can see where everybody's at and what this person is captivated by and this person is captivated by, it's easy to just assume. It's well, well said. Right? Yeah, well said. So it's just one of those questions that I like to ask of the text. Because we come into these things, we usually just read right over that. Like, oh, she was a fortune teller, fine. You know, and we move on. So, but wait a minute. What does that mean? Um... But what's very interesting about it is keep, go to the next verse. She followed Paul and us, meaning all four of them, crying out against them, saying, don't listen to these people. They're not telling you the truth. Oh, wait, I'm not reading the verse right, am I? What is she shouting? These men are servants of the Most High God, Elohim who proclaim you the way of salvation. Wait a minute. She's preaching in support of Paul and Silas. Yes. Sounds like Balaam. Very much so. I mean, think about this. This is a demon. I mean, we, we all know that the demons believe Jesus more than humans do. They don't doubt his existence. I mean, we have people out there who say there is no God, there is no Jesus, and the demons are going, what are you talking about? We know exactly who he is. So, anyway, that's another thought. Um, she is witnessing for Paul, and Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And she did this for many days. And look what Paul, how he reacted. Thank you so much for your testimony, <laughs> Sally. We appreciate you. No, he became greatly annoyed. He recognized that there was a spirit not of God in this woman. So why? And this is another one of those questions you have to ask of the text. Why would a demon-possessed girl come alongside and promote the gospel preachers. To what end? To what purpose? Now, I have my answer, but I want to see if you can come up with one. Yeah. I think since he was annoyed, she kept at it, possibly. You know, yeah. just, uh, you know, I just was uh, disrupting everything. And, and yet and what she's saying is true. Right. It was more disruptive in her manner and the flying hair. You know what I mean. Uh -huh. Yeah. If she, was, yeah. If, if she was in her wrong mind. Right. But let's say she was normal, normal saying these wonderful things. Yes. Well, <coughs> it said, you know, it uh, confirms what Paul writes in, I think it's uh, Ephesians. It says, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, and... And, and so what's happening is this is a spiritual level mm -hmm. of conflict, yep. if you will, and the humans don't recognize it. 
exactly. can't recognize it. Exactly. She's insinuating herself or sliding herself into the group. So let's say we're the Philippian church, just us. There's about 20 some odd of us here in this room. And then suddenly someone new comes in. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was really hoping that someone new would be in here and I could say that. But anyway, so someone new comes in and they start saying all the right things and suddenly they're welcomed in, but when you get to know them, they're just off and they start pulling one group, another group, another group, and there becomes this faction over here. Many preachers look at this, and they look at this as a major warning to the church. It says, there are people who will claim they are of Christ and are very verbal and vocal about it, but in reality, they are not. Um... Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Here is an evil spirit bearing witness to the truth of God, and it grieved Paul. When you hear a bad man ridiculing religion, you don't, you're not surprised. What else would you expect? But if you hear the devil recommending Christ, you ought to be grieved, for the Lord Jesus does not want patronage or praise from Satan. Men would begin to suspect that Christ was in league with Satan. And if Satan began to speak well of Christ... Dread to be spoken well of by ungodly men, for there is a great danger in such praise. There may be a motive at the bottom of the flattery, which may be full of mischief. Just this last week or so, we had a very famous singer, Lady Gaga, came out and says, I'm a Christian, and I cannot stand Mike Pence and his so-called Christian faith. And I sat back and went, wait, what? She's making this bold claim. So those who don't understand see that label, self-applied, and they go, oh, well, she must be right because we like her music. Mm. Let's make another more insidious look. I've talked about this before, but um, I need to reiterate it. There was a novel came out about 11 years ago called The Shack by William Paul Young. 20 million people have bought that book. 20 million. It was made into a movie. Made millions of dollars. A lot of people watch it, listen to it. Um, many years ago, after the book had first come out, there was a, uh, a neighbor in our office complex, and he and I were chatting one afternoon, and I found out he was a former Lutheran minister, and he asked me what I thought about the, the novel, The Shack. And I gave him my opinion. And he goes, oh, wow. Um, and he got tears in his eyes. He said, that book taught me about grace in a way that I'd never learned before. Uh, well, I, yeah, that's kind of the message in the book. But if you look at its underlying theology that's in the book, is that the grace means that no one goes to hell. Everyone is saved because God is so good. He would never be bad. He would never be mean. And so he loves everybody and welcomes everybody no matter what. So for many years, um, 
there were a lot of questions about the novel. Um, a lot of ink was spilled, a lot of books were written, and everyone was really kind of wondering where the author stood. So last year, the author wrote a book called The Lies We Believe About God. And we now have his nonfiction theology. One of the lies is God is good and I am not. He says, that's not true. You're a good person. God is good too. So this whole idea that you need to be shamed into sin is bogus. Secondly, he said, there is a lie that hell is separation from God. There is no hell. Everyone is going to be saved in the end. And then later on in the book, he writes that God was a cosmic abuser if the cross was his idea. So he was guilty of child abuse. Seriously. And this man speaks at Christian conferences and is invited to churches all across the country. That is someone worming his way in with his ideas. Now, he has never dispensed with them. He never said he wasn't. But there's been this welcoming because the story is a story of grace. That's so dangerous. So you have, and I'm not saying he's demon-possessed or anything like that, I'm just making the comparison that when you hear things, be discerning. Just because they're famous, just because they have a TV show, just because they have a book, take it and apply it against this book Mm, and see if it is true. I don't care if it's somebody who's standing in the pulpit in our church. I don't care if it's some bozo standing in this class behind a podium right now. (laughs) Take what I'm saying and go, hmm, interesting thought. Is Is he biblical? Do I agree? Do I disagree? There's one criteria in its scripture, the word of God. We have to be very careful about that. All right. Enough of my soapbox. So she cries about, cries around, uh, yelling, you know, he's, he's the, this great way. Paul turns and says to the spirit that's within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. And it came out that very hour. Wow, okay, that's incredible. Um, so the next verse is, the owners, her, the slave owners, were very happy that she was saved. (laughs) They were thrilled. They thought, we have been worried about this woman. This young girl keeps frothing at the mouth, and it's been a problem, and we just don't know how to cure it. We've taken her to all these doctors. No. There is no care or concern about this girl at all. None. All they saw was the money she made them. Just think about it. If you wanted to hear a oracle of Delphi, you had to go to Delphi to get it. She was a portable oracle. She could go anywhere, anywhere they wanted to take her. And they set her up in a marketplace, probably a $5, you know, fortune-telling booth or something, and then she would do her thing, and they made money. Her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone. 
little interesting byplay in the Greek. When it said in verse uh, 18 that the Spirit came out that very hour, it's the same Greek word that says the hope of prophet was gone. So came out and was gone is the same Greek word. It was exercised. Paul exercised their pockets. Mm. Come out! Woo, look at all that money flowing out of their pockets. Woo, isn't that great? I mean, he, he, took, he took, them, took their livelihood away. Now, this isn't the first time we see this in Scripture. Jesus did it in Mark 5, where he was down in the, the, the Gerizines, where the demoniac came out of the, the caves and started, you know, flailing at them, and he commanded the demons to flee him, and where did he send them? Into a herd of swine, a bunch of pigs. Now, when we studied that, you have to remember, Jews didn't own pigs. The Greeks did. The, the Arabs did. So when those pigs went over the cliff, who came to Jesus the next morning? The people of the town. They were not happy. They just lost their revenue. Because sitting there was that man in his right mind. And they looked at Jesus and said, could you go away? You're not welcome here. It was a little more forceful than that, but you get my idea. We also have a case later in Acts where in Ephesus... In Acts chapter 19, verses 19 through 28, 29, something like that, we have Paul going around. Um, actually, I'll just read one section. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Those are expensive books. Now, granted, they didn't have printing presses, so each book was pretty valuable. And then we have another where the, they were crying out against those who were uh, no longer doing business with the artisans related to Artemis. And a riot occurred because the pocketbooks were hit. You want to get somebody mad? <laughs> Threaten their revenue. I mean, we've seen it in our own country. You know, people are always complaining about their wages and, and all of this. And... When that gets threatened, it's their livelihood. I mean, how am I going to eat if, the, if I don't have any money? <coughs> so they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the Agora, <coughs> the marketplace, also known as Scottsdale Fashion Square. Because that's what this was. This was the local mall. This is where people congregated. This is where they exchanged their goods. You might have the farmers there, you might have the artisans, you might have the, those who made spoons and those who made the, the carpentry stuff. All of that was in this marketplace. <coughs> in the marketplace, there was usually a, a meeting spot. So, if you've ever been to Scottsdale Fashion Square, you could probably even picture one or two places where someone could be put up a chair and sit and a whole bunch of people gather to listen to someone's wisdom in the middle of the marketplace. That's where the magistrates held court. 
Magistrates, there were two of them for every Roman colony. This is like the co-mayors. These were the ones who ran the show. They only reported to Rome. Most often, magistrates weren't simple politicians. Many of them, especially in the colonies, were former soldiers. So they had had some connection to Rome and they were put in charge. These magistrates pretty much ruled. If there were disputes between two people, they were brought before the, the marketplace, brought to the marketplace, and they would rule. And it, the two of them would confer, and they would make a judgment. Now, what Paul and Silas had done to this young girl was not illegal. There was nothing in the Roman law that said you can't cast out a demon. Nothing. Probably because they didn't believe there was such a thing, but it was not an issue. So when they brought them before the rulers, they had to come up with something that was illegal. And by the way, verse 20, then they brought them to the magistrates. The Greek word for magistrates is strategos. Anybody know the board game, Stratego? <laughs> I loved that game when I was a kid. I used to play against myself and win every time. <laughs> it was amazing. I was always champion. It was, and I could play the game pretty quick too. Um, Anyway, <coughs> they also like to call themselves the Praetors, P-R-E-A-T-O-R, the Praetor, which was a more Latin term for mayor or ruler, and it also was an honorable title in the Roman panoply. They came before them and said, these men are Jews. Oh, remember what I said in the beginning? 49 A.D., Emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome. So obviously this is a mark against them, that they're Jews. And they are disturbing our city. You see, technically, you could worship anybody or anything you wanted in the Roman Empire. You had religious freedom. As long as you still gave assent to Caesar. As long as you didn't try to corrupt or convert the Roman. Now usually that was just, you know, it wasn't a big deal. They just let, set it aside, you know, let bygones be bygones. But if it came to the point of civil disturbance, like a potential riot, or anything like that, then the, the, the rulers or the police would come in and say, okay, done with this, no, we're, we're done. And then we see this over and over and over again in the New Testament, where things are going along fairly well and then it gets kind of ratcheted up and suddenly it becomes a big deal. But they are trumping up these charges against them. They're disturbing our city. <coughs> they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them verbally. This isn't physical yet. So possibly because these guys were, um, they had money, maybe they paid a few in the crowd. Hey, 
when we get there, start saying this. Down with Paul. You know, go home Jew. You know, something like that. And kind of whipping the group into a frenzy and then others start picking up on it and next thing you know, you've got 35 or 40 voices in Scottsdale Fashion Square, in that big echo chamber, all shouting stuff and it's disturbance. And the shoppers are now stopping their shopping. And now the other marketplace owners are mad. And they join in. They're going, where, where, where is everybody going? It's not lunchtime. My gosh, they're going, I almost made that sale. Now they're mad. So you have this, you can picture it. A mob mentality is now attacking them. And right in front of everybody, now this isn't due process. We don't have witnesses other than the accuser. We have no counter argument. We got nothing. All we've got is suddenly the magistrates reach down and tear off their garments and leave them standing there, probably with only their loincloth. Now this is very denigrating. They're dehumanizing them in front of everyone. And then gave orders to beat them with rods. Now in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I was beaten with rods three times. So this is the first that we know. And he was beaten in Lystra, but we're not sure if it was law with rods or not. Whether that was with fix, with rocks, with fists or whatever. But we have him being beaten. And those who beat them, we will find the Greek word for it later. But they are, actually it's a Latin word, uh, the police. These are not the magistrates, these are their, um, their force, their police force. And they were called lictors. That's a Latin word. And the Latin word means to bind. And that's where we get our phrase, to get in our licks. That's where it comes from. Because these guys had these rods, they weren't your typical, you know, pole that had been um, shaved. They would take uh, small sticks, very firm ones, usually elm, and tie them together. And they would use those as their beating rods. Very good in riot control. They hurt. Now, I looked it up because you have three different types of beatings in the New Testament. You have the lashing, like with the coat of nine tails that Jesus experienced. And there were laws about how many lashes that could be given. It was 40. Because after 40, you're probably going to kill him. Which is why Jesus was lashed 39 times. And they would count it to make sure that the guy dealing the whip um, didn't lose count and kill the guy. There's also flogging, which is very similar to lashing, but flogging was usually done with chains. Ow. I just, wow. But, you ever have a teacher paddle you with a, you know, a paddle? Oh, you were a good boy. It never happened to you. <laughs> in junior high, when paddling was still legal in the public schools, we had one um, teacher 
who was known for his paddles. He took his paddles and drilled holes in them so they could be a lot swifter. And he also had a yellow line of tape in front of his desk. And if you cross that line, you got a swat. And he'd take you out in the hall, make you grab your ankles, and bam, you'd hear it inside the room. And the guy would be coming in with tears in his eyes. So one of my classmates wanted to set the record for most swats. He got 60 of them. He would do it two or three times in class. I mean, you talk about annoying a teacher. I mean, he didn't care. He just thought this was grand fun. Mm. Yeah, he's probably in jail. Um, but anyway, we're all just going, what are you doing? Because he would walk up to that line and go, <laughs> just to see if the teacher would follow the rules, and he did. Um, the lictors. Now, you may have seen or uh, you know of that that police will carry their, um, I don't know what you call them, their rods? Their, I don't know what they call them. Billy the baton, and the wand, the wand, the baton. But it's, it's, it's small and then they can pull it apart and they can use it. Or they have the actual baton stick. That's meant to control someone who's out of control. And we've all seen the terrible things of, you know, police brutality or whatever. And I'm not even going to get into that. But it, that picture, imagine that's Paul and Silas. And it's unrelenting because with rods, there's no limit to the number of times they can be hit. None. They just don't hit them in the head. So they can beat them until they are raw, bruised, bloodied, until they are in complete submission. And it says in verse 23, they inflicted many blows upon them and then threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. You know, preaching the gospel sometimes has a uh, consequence in this world. Richard Collier, the historian of the Salvation Army, talks about the early days of the Salvation Army. Now, what's our current picture of the Salvation Army? The little kettle. It's very, very gentle. They are not standing there saying, you're all going to hell. You're going to die in your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't hear that from the little bell ringers. Back in the early days, they would go into the highways and byways, the darkest, dankest parts of town with their band. And they would be playing the praise music and they'd set up a box and one of their preachers would get up and preach the gospel. And they were bringing people to Christ in droves. But here was the reaction. Persecution was very great from the beginning. Gangs frequently hurled mud and stones through the windows of the preaching in the crowd. The liquor dealers worked hard to have William Booth kicked out of East London. The police were no help. In fact, they often broke up outdoor meetings and accused Booth's followers of being the cause for all the trouble. In other words, they were preaching against liquor, against alcohol. Beatings were not uncommon. In 1889, at least 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted. Wow. 
we, we think our verbal abuse on Twitter is bad. These were actual assaults. Some were killed, many were maimed, even children were not immune. <coughs> Ruffians threw lime in the eyes of a child of a Salvation Army member. The newspapers ridiculed Booth. One newspaper referred to him as Field Marshal Von Booth. All because they were preaching the gospel and affecting the pocketbooks of those who were plying their trade in those parts of town. Well, Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher <coughs> in the 17th century, had this to say about suffering. As the hard frosts in winter bring in the flower in the spring, as the night ushers in the morning star, so the evils of affliction produce much good to those who love God. <coughs> Excuse me. Affliction works for good in that they make way for glory. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, affliction prepare and make us fit for glory. <coughs> as the painter lays his gold upon dark colors, so God first lays the dark colors of affliction, and then he lays the golden cover of glory. The vessel is first seasoned before wine is poured into it, and the vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction, and then the wine of glory is poured in. Paul and Silas had done nothing. All they'd done is actually saved a young girl mm. from a life of horrific possession. And they give them over to this jailer and said, just make them safe. Having received the order, he, <coughs> excuse me, goodness. I'm going to stick a lozenge in my mouth and if you hear me clicking it around, um, just, you can always leave if it's bothering you. It's certainly bothering me. Um, he, the jailer, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, <coughs> we usually have the colonial America picture of stocks, you know, that thing in the public square with the hole in it and for the wrist and the head. <coughs> Similar idea. But in this era, the stocks for the feet had multiple holes in them depending on the size of the prisoner. So the stock was long, and it would be a couple close, and then a few farther away. And the idea was to spread the legs of the prisoner to the point of cramping, and then they would lock him in. Now remember, They've just been beaten. They may have been bloodied, bruised, you know, they're aching, and now they're sitting there with their legs spread in the inner prison. The inner prison was the safest place. It was also the hardest to break out of because you had to go through multiple levels to get out to the street. But most 
uh, archaeologists and whatever have figured that this was the place where there was no light. It was rat infested, smelly, no toilets, not even one of those steel bowls that you see in our prison system. Probably not even a bucket. And they obviously can't get up and relieve themselves, so they have to sit there in their own soil. And they're hurting. So it's most likely they can't even stand up. So they're probably sitting or leaning against a wall with their bruised backs. I mean, think of the suffering here. Let's just not just pass this off. We don't have it stated that their arms were latched, but it's possible that they had their arms latched as well. And they're thrown into the deep, darkest, dankest spot. And they've done nothing. They've also said nothing up to this point. They didn't have a chance. They're pulled out of the crowd, taken to the magistrates. The magistrates hear the rioting and the, the noise and just strip them and get them beaten and now they're thrown into this prison. Now imagine this jailer. Yeah, he's probably cynical. He's done this hundreds of times. You know, he has no sympathy at all. None. He's not a kind-hearted jailer. He's doing his job. And it's an un, um, probably not a nice job, but you know, gives him enough money to have a home and family. And most likely, from what we can construct from the rest of the story, his home was part of the jail. So it wasn't like he was living up in Paradise Valley and had to drive down into Central City to, uh, to go to the jail. It was probably another part of the house so that he was right there. He could oversee things. <sighs> and here comes the great story, which we're all very familiar. About midnight, seriously, midnight? Now, they're probably not able to go to sleep because of the pain. So at midnight, they began complaining. That's what it says. They were complaining and grumbling and just saying those, you know, those dumb people out there, they don't know what they're talking about. No. It says they were praying and singing hymns. The other prisoners were shouting, shut up. You're keeping me awake. No, we don't have anything from the other prisoners. They're just singing praise. What were they singing? Head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, knees and toes, head and shoulders, knees and toes. Clap your hands for Jesus. No, they were probably singing the Hallel Psalms, which were sung in worship. The grand worship psalms of the Jewish faith. They were singing these psalms. And they're praying. And notice the word hymns. This is a new word. In our, in our text. It is the Greek word homneo. Homneo. Homneo is where we get our word hymn from. Hymn. Augustine, later, many 300 years later, 400 years later, wrote about hymns. 
They must be sung. They must be praised. And they must be to God. They need to be Him sings. They need about Him. Not about us. If you're you're singing a chorus that's all about you, it's not a hymn. It's a nice ditty. But songs that are sung to God, those are hymns of praise and worship. They're praying. One preacher said, Paul sang tenor, Silas sang baritone, and God brought the bass. (laughs) And it was thunderous. Thunderous to the point that it shook the whole house. It shook the building because right there the other prisoners are listening to them and suddenly there's a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken, not destroyed. It says they were shaken. Now you've heard me tell my stories about earthquake. How many of you have actually been in an earthquake where you felt it? Felt the building shake? Felt the ground move? So there are a few of us. It is the most how should I say, um, helpless feeling. There's nothing you can do. There's, all you can do is run under the doorway and hope the house doesn't fall on you. And the, the earth is moving beneath and it's loud. There's this... Now it's interesting, a lot of different scholars are wondering how widespread this earthquake was because there's no record of it anywhere. It's the only time there's any mention of an earthquake around this time in that part of the country. So some were wondering if it was just simply a spiritual earthquake that was very localized. Eh, maybe, maybe not. But we know it was a spiritual earthquake because of what happened. The doors were all opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now let me tell you this, if I'm sitting there in chains and in stocks and the earth starts moving, those locks are not going to come undone because the earth is moving. There's no connection at all. Maybe they will come off the wall where they're fastened, but the chains are not going to fall off the wrist. The bonds are not going to fall off the feet. Here they did. These are miracles. No question about it. These are supernatural events here. The doors are open. Now, maybe I can see that, but the doors were locked. Which meant they were unfastened. And it wasn't just Paul and Silas's door. It was all of them. It's like someone hit that electric button in the front and they went... No, they didn't have those. They were fastened. Now, one scholar said back then they may not have had locks. They may have had the two-by-four bars that were dropped into Mm. holders. But it would take a lot for them to fly off and the doors pop open. When the jailer woke, the singing didn't wake him. The earthquake did. And he may have been in another part of the building. Or maybe he was on watch in the front of the building. We don't know. We don't really know where he is. But he turns and he sees that the prison doors are open. Oh my gosh. They've all escaped. 
It's his first reaction. They've, they've run away. Because every prisoner is going to take advantage of their shackles off and the doors open. Sorry, that's just that's the way prisoners are. They're just going to sit around going, oh, gee, look at that. No, it's freedom! <laughs> he sees that and he is going to commit suicide. He draws his sword and was going to kill himself because the prisoners had escaped. Roman law says if a guard lost his prisoner, he was given the same punishment the prisoner would have received. We see that in Acts chapter 12, actually. Verses 18 and 19. When the day came, there was no little... This is after Peter had been rescued from prison. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they, would be, that they should be put to death. So we have an example where jailers or sentries, the soldiers, had consequences for the escaped prisoner. But Paul, he must have seen him down the hallway in his agony. Oh my gosh, pulling out his dagger. Technically the word sword there is not a long sword, but a short one. More like a dagger. Maybe even the Roman short sword. And Paul cried out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. We're all here. That's another miracle. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He prostrated, he prostrated himself before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Huh. That's not the question that you would have expected. Wouldn't it have been more like, what are you doing here? Why are you still here? But he cries out, what must I do to be saved? Saved. Could it be that the jailer had heard some of the messages that Paul and Silas had been preaching in the town and word had gone around? And he's listening to this and now this miracle is standing before him. And the answer is so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved in your household. Paul Harvey, the great Paul Harvey, once told the story of a little boy who caught birds and kept them in a sack. One day an old man met the little boy along a pathway. And the man heard a pitiful sound of wings slapping the inside of the sack in a Hopeless, pathetic sort of chirping coming from within. What you got in the sack, the old man said. Hey, I got a sack full of sparrows, said the little boy. Well, what are you going to do with them, said the man. I'm going to take them out of the sack one by one, tease them, pull their feathers out, and feed them to the cat. What? The man said, how much do you want for the whole sack? The little boy thought about it and said, two bucks. Done. The old man reached in his pocket, gave the two dollars. Taking the sack, he opened it and exposed to the light, one by one, the birds struggled toward the opening and jumped out free, 
liberated and flying to the sky. And so it happened. One day God met Lucifer, who was carrying a big bag. And inside the bag were the most helpless sounds of life struggling to be free. What have you got in the bag? asked God. People, said Lucifer, with a smirk. And what are you going to do with them? God asked. I will torment and oppress them one by one. And when they're all worn out with trials, I'll throw them into hell. And God said, well, what will you take for all of them? And the smirk turned to a smile, and Lucifer said, You're only beloved. Done, said the Father, and he reached down to earth and gave us the gift of his Son. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your household. We don't need to make it complicated, it's really simple. I've run out of time. I'll pick this up a little bit more next week. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, we don't have to get into massive theological and apologetic arguments. While those are interesting and helpful, if someone asks, what must you do to be saved? You don't say, be a good person. You don't say, go to church every faithfully. I mean, growing up, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and probably Thursday for choir practice. That was the rule. Boy, did I try to get out of that. I would take the thermometer and put it in my mouth. I have a fever. Mom would go, you do not. Anyway, it's not works. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Your word is so rich. These stories are so full. And there's so much more to be had when we look at all of this. We read this. We hear these stories. We are amazed at the faithfulness of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke in the face of an entire culture that is against them. They did not hesitate to share the gospel. Lord, give us that power and that strength that when the opportunities arise, that we do not shy away and say, it's this simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.